uncovering your truth and fire, one conversation at a time. This is the Spitfire Podcast. The Spitfire Podcast is brought to you by the Spitfire Coach, a subsidiary of Lauren Lamunning Coaching, LLC. If you'd like more information about business coaching or how to get the passion back in your profession, go to laurenlamunning.com or thespitfirecoach.com. What's going on, Spitfires? We are coming back at you with another amazing episode. And today we have the playwright behind one of our other guests, shows that she was in. So we have the playwright of Sovereignty. We've got Mary Catherine Nagel. She is not just a playwright, but she is a partner in a law firm. And this woman has an insane schedule. We're going to talk about that. And what drives her to keep writing, to keep producing, to keep telling her story about the Cherokee Nation, her family, and beyond. So I'm going to call you MK because now, now we've been acquainted with each other. Thank you so much for joining me for the Spitfire podcast. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. So where is here for you? Well, at this very moment, I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, looking out over downtown Tulsa. Uh, my law office is at the corner of 3rd and South Boston, and I love it when I get to work from this beautiful office that I have with all of my colleagues here, but I am often on the road. So it's always a treat when I get to come home and sit and write a brief or a play um, at my own desk instead of on an airplane or in a hotel room. <laughs> I have to ask you, do you ever suffer from carpal tunnel from all of this writing you're doing? Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> I, um, this summer, I actually did a major revision of Manhattan, like in 24 hours. And uh, that's the play that it's at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival right now. And I think it just it sort of came out of me. And that was really exciting to have that happen. And then I, I think I was so into the typing that it sort of came up for air. And I'd been typing so much in one day that um, I actually kind of injured my left hand and had to do a bunch of acupuncture. And I started doing um, special stretches. Um, you know, I mean, they're not that special. I'm mm -hmm. sure everyone else knows how to do these stretches. But um, I had to do them and then um, started soaking my hands in Epsom salt baths and then also just thought about typing less, yeah. um, which is hard to do. We have a society that's very addicted to typing because of online social media and also text messaging and also emails as a lawyer. Uh, we sort of live in a culture. I, I was trained as a lawyer at a famous law firm that's like famous for its addiction to emails. And that's <laughs> a manual in New York city. Um, if you would all follow the blog above the law, they post this like famous email from one of our partners where, um, an associate had failed to respond to an email that was sent at 4 a.m. And this associate hadn't responded before 6 a.m. or something crazy, and he was getting chastised. You know, and then the whole office got chastised. Like, all associates were put on notice that they need to respond to their emails. And so having gotten my first five years as a lawyer training in that environment, which Quinn Emanuel had a lot of redeeming qualities, and some of the, the best attributes I have as an, an attorney today come from my time at Quinn Emanuel. But I also learned... Um, to, to check my email and to check my email continuously. And I think that's a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. And I think probably a lot of people in this country now check their email too much. So and I'm one of, I'm one of them. Yeah. I mean, so what happens if you don't check your email in your mind? Chaos. And I get so far behind that it's like hard to dig out. So that's, it's sort of like just treading water right now. And, and, you know, so, um, some of that I think is just consciously we have to become okay with, not getting everything done every day. And so I, I've actually tried to focus more 
on when I wake up in the morning defining what is success for me. You know, I'm going to draft this much of a brief. I'm going to work on these revisions to a play. And I'm going to spend two hours answering emails. And what I can answer, great. What I can't get to, and I sort of rely on people that if they have a crisis they need to deal with, that they'll just reply all again and say, hey, you didn't see my email from yesterday. Here's this again. But not everyone, everyone engages in email etiquette in different ways. And I just, I think it's all about being purposeful about what you you give your time to every day. Mm-hmm. And um, I think email is an easy hole to fall into and then get stuck in. And you just have to be intentional about how you create that time and space. It's, it's so true. I'm, I see it happen. And it's not just with email, like it'll be text messages or Facebook, mm-hmm. but someone, you always have kind of your poison of like, where does your natural time suck go to? You know, is it reality TV or podcasts? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, um, mine is email and texting. <laughs> I, I do a lot of that. And uh, sometimes I just have to pull away and then be okay with people are not going to get an immediate response from me. And if people are in an emergency, you know, they'll find some way to reach you. They'll email you, text you, call you, leave you, you like, and you'll see, oh my gosh, I just got five different messages from someone. They must, there must be something serious going on. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, being constantly attached to your phone is it's not helpful to the creative process, that's for sure. And being a lawyer is also a creative process. Mm-hmm. So, Tell me more about that. So how do you use creativity when you practice law? you have to create something from nothing. I mean, writing a brief is you've got a blank page and you have to write, you have to write a story Mm -hmm. and you have to tell that story with the tools that the courts have given you. So you have to take pieces of what courts have said and use that to advocate um, for your best interest, for your client's interests. But ultimately it's storytelling Mm -hmm. and everything's a story. And so you're trying to tell the best story I think a lot of lawyers forget that mm-hmm. and the, the best lawyers are the best storytellers because at the end of the day, a jury is made up of people who usually are not lawyers. Mm-hmm. So the judge will shape the law for them. But to win a jury, it's just like any group of humans, you have to tell the most compelling story. So interesting. So, so, so the influence comes from storytelling. So how much of empathy is used in, in that? In, in working with a jury? Oh, a lot. I mean, they bring in, and, you know, the firms that have resources will bring in, um, you know, they, they have jury consulting firms now that do, wow. te- like, will test the different narratives you have. So you could say, well, we really think this case is about a guy who's had a rough childhood who just really wanted to plant a tree in his yard. I mean, I don't, I'm just making this up as I go along. <laughs> and so they'll say, you know, this story is about this. And then they'll, and the, or they'll say, but it's really about a guy who had just been fired by an irrational employer who made one mistake and got in his car and drove off. And they'll take all these different narratives. Then they'll test them with different groups of people and see which resonates more powerfully with that jury. That's just storytelling. Yeah. And if you think about even the cases that go up to the United States Supreme Court, um, there's a story being told there, you know, and so. For instance, in the Dollar General case, when that went up to the Supreme Court, Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians, their story was this sex, this sexual assault that happened in this case happened on our lands to our child, a 13-year-old tribal citizen. We are, the, of course, the first sovereign that should have 
jurisdiction mm -hmm. to right this wrong because it happened to our citizen on our lands. Dollar General's story was, hey, we're an American citizen. We have rights under the United States Constitution. And honestly, a part of their story was tribes aren't real governments and their courts aren't real courts. And so, you know, those two stories were in competition with one another. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, but that resulted in a 4-4 tie at the Supreme Court. So you can see how both of those narratives have traction in our American society right now. So interesting. So when I was talking to Kyla, we were talking about history books and how this narrative of very one-sided history was being written. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how did you, because you're, you are a citizen of the Cherokee nation, how mm -hmm. did you unpack that and repack that and now get inspired to write all these amazing plays? <laughs> well, I uh, grew up hearing the stories that my grandmother told me and she's the great granddaughter of John Ridge. And she's, she's now buried just a few rows away from him in our family cemetery, but she would take me to his grave and say, this is where, you know, the, the cemetery that's, that is in the play is my family cemetery. Mm -hmm. And I grew up going to that cemetery and I grew up hearing all these stories and they had a huge impression on me and they left a huge mark. And I always saw this as, um, fate or destiny or what my life's mission has been. And so I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be an attorney and I wanted to follow in my grandfather's footsteps. I never in a million years dreamed I'd have the opportunity to write a play about my family and some of my own personal journey and perform that on one of the best stages in the American theater, right? Yeah. And have it be in Washington, D.C., where elected leaders and Supreme Court justices go and see theater. And we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, I mean, it was powerful. I went to opening night and I went with my boyfriend. And I was just like, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> usually like, you know, you see a play or a musical and there's times where you just kind of zone out and you're like, is this going to be done? When's the intermission? But I was just like locked in the entire time. And, and the way that you like wrote in these changes where it's like, you're sort of laughing and, and then something really shocking happens. That's powerful. And it just kind of stops you in your tracks. Like that feeling of unease. Like yeah. it was so poetic in the way that it was done. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's It's been really amazing to get to talk to people who saw the play and, and hear their reactions because I think in the theater world, it, this is a huge problem for theater artists. We get very insular mm -hmm. and we talk to other theater artists about what did you think of this play and, you know, and it's so-and-so who's worked on Broadway for 20 years, you know, and that's great. But at the end of the day, we're not telling stories for other people who work in the theater. That's mm -hmm. part of our audience, but we're really telling stories for everyone, or at least I am. And it's hard to get that feedback necessarily because you know, a lot of people who come see the play leave at the end of it and walk out into the street. And so I would, I would go stand in the lobby and just listen mm -hmm. to what everyone was saying. And it was always quite remarkable to me to hear the different comments um, and very moving to hear what everyone had to say, very touching. How many plays have you written so far? I I have a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, but a lot that'll never see the light of day, right? I mean, I wrote a play about climate change when I was in law school at Tulane and called um, To the Seventh Degree. I don't think anyone's ever going to produce that play. I also had a play that I wrote in law school called Welcome to Chalmette that I don't, you know, I, I love that play, but I don't know that any major theater is ever going to do it. So, um, So I have a lot of plays that sort of exist because I used to write very much so and, and sort of strictly for community. Mm -hmm. um, and I, because I wasn't a professional playwright, I was just a playwright who wrote stories for my community. So I wrote plays um, 
you know, for, for particular tribes I was working with or my law school community, um, college, things like that. Um, then I, um, moved to New York to work at this law firm that I told you about. It ended up getting into the, um, emerging writers group at the public theater. And so since then, which is, I, I sort of marked that as the start of my professional career as a playwright, I've written, um, Manhattan is one, and I wrote that when I was in the Emerging Writers Group at the Public. And then I've had, um, I wrote Misled, actually, actually the first version of Misled was my senior thesis in college, so I guess, but then I rewrote it and it got produced off-Broadway in 2014. Mm -hmm. I wrote Fairly Traceable when I was in the Civilians R&D Group, and then it got produced by Native Voices of the Autry. And then since then, all those three plays, I've also had five commissions. So I guess you could say I have eight um, plays plus a play called, so nine, I have Silver of Full Moon. Yeah. So how do you balance all of this with everything that's going on with your career, with all of these passions that you have? Where do you find the balance? Well, it's tough. Um, I spend a lot of hours a day working. Mm -hmm. Again, checking my email constantly. I have to carve off the times when I'm going to write. So for instance, right now I'm in the middle of writing a brief and I just have to find, I find one hour windows during the day and amongst all the craziness where I just don't look at my phone, I don't look at my email and I write um, because I have to have that sustained focus to really get into the legal writing. And it's the same thing if you work on a play, you have to really focus. And um, I've actually found I fly so much on airplanes that airplanes are really great because you can't use your cell phone. And um, if I just don't turn the, if I don't buy Wi-Fi, I can get a lot of work done. Mm. So the I, fact that I spend a lot of time on planes has actually maybe in some ways increased my productivity. Interesting. It's like the, the force, like cut off of distraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I hear that so much with clients that I work with. They're like, how do I manage my time? How do I block things off? And I, I, I do the rule of 10 with them. I actually picked this up like a couple weeks ago where it was when you have mm -hmm. a to-do list, you look at mm -hmm. your priorities and you section off the things that need to get done today. And mm -hmm. then you scale them from one to 10. 10 is like, absolutely have to do it. And you uh, only focus on your tens. And once you're done with your tens and you focus on your nines, then the eights, but you don't look at the list overall. You only focus on those top level. That's kind of what I do, but that's, I like, that's even a better tool because it's so overwhelming when you think about everything. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I also will take things. I'm like, Oh my God, I have these eight things I have to do. And I'll say, okay, this is Monday. This is Tuesday. This is Wednesday. This is Thursday. And I give them different days. And then I just, today I'm like, okay, today I'm focused on this. Um, because if you focus on everything all at once, it's like, oh. Yeah, it's, it's super it's overwhelming. Just, it's super overwhelming. Well, and that's the problem with email because there's no way, like you can flag it, you can do that, but there's really no way to prioritize it. I also, once I open an email, then I respond to it. You have and to. And I don't, yeah. I don't go out to another email, unless like, some crisis happens and someone calls me and it's like, oh my God, can you believe so-and-so just emailed this? You can't answer emails as fast as they come in and then you have to be okay with that. And that's tough. Yeah. It's tough. I have anxiety when I don't respond to, when I go to bed at night and I see 12 unread or sometimes I go to bed and it's like 30 unread text messages and I'm like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, just, it's okay. We'll get to them when we wake up in the morning. You got to sleep. Yeah. You know? Totally. Do you have an assistant or anyone helping you right now? Yes. Um, my assistant's name is Alex Ponka stock. She is a lifesaver. I would not be able to function without her. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's great. How long have you been working with an assistant? 
Um, she came on board and she's, she actually works for Pipestem Law. So she works for our law firm and mm-hmm. my law partner. Um, and she works for our entire firm, but she's just helped me. Like she books all my travel. She, um, you know, she, there's just a lot that she helps me with. And a lot of times, you know, if I can, I will email directly with someone to get them on my calendar. But at times when it gets just bananas, I just forward the emails to her and ask her, like, can you please follow up and get this on my calendar? Because if I have to do all the scheduling, I just, I don't get through my email. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she's probably about, gosh, a year and a half that we've been working with her. Yeah. So I find yeah. so many people like have that are in the creative space want to hold on to everything and feel like they have mm-hmm. to have touch points. And it's like, no, 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 I can't let this go because then it won't happen. But then they end up getting distracted and having their energy pulled where it doesn't oh, need to completely, be. Completely. Completely. And so, um, working with Alex was like one of the best decisions for my life. <laughs> <laughs> go Alex. We need to yeah. have that in our lives. She's amazing. For sure. So if you could clone some aspect of yourself to make your life easier, what would it be? I would love to clone. Oh, there are so many things to be great to have. I mean, maybe if I could just have someone who would like keep track of all my stuff. Like I just have like, <laughs> I'm like when I print out transcripts that I need to read or briefs and it's like, where did that go? And like respond, like just the piles of paper that surround me. Like I'm really like, I'm actually really good at answering emails quickly um, I've mastered that art form, mm-hmm. but like the bills, just the physical, like getting them in the mail and then paying them, you know, it's all this stuff that I'm just not very good at. So it sounds you like know? you need, you need a shadow filing system. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to plant the seeds for that to appear in your life. Uh, thank you. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are a shadow filing system, contact MP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be exactly. a new app. It'll happen. It'll just like track your stuff in RFID, the barcode on the file, and it'll tell you exactly where it is in your house. Actually, that's, that's a very... really good app. I should probably... Wouldn't that be a great app? That would be amazing. So app developers, go and make it happen. Mm-hmm. You can send mm-hmm. us the, the commission bill later. Um <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So what's next for you? You've got, you've got a play in the works. Um, I have a play at uh, the Oregon Chair and that opened on April 1st and it runs through October 27th. And on Sunday I head to Washington DC to actually workshop a children's play at the Kennedy Center. Nice. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. What's, what play is that? It's called Return to Niobrara and it's a story that follows, um, Ponca Chief uh, Standing Bear and his fight for civil rights and for the recognition of Indians as persons under the law in federal court in 1879 and pairs it, parallels it to one of his direct descendants who's fighting um, for recognition, um, you know, in the courts for recognition of his religious rights and his religious freedoms in today's society. So sort of does the parallel back and forth between a young um, middle school student and his great great grandfather and their and their relationship with one another through through the generations. That's awesome. So I, I noticed in, in your stories there's a lot of multi generational storytelling. What's what's the common theme for you in doing that? I mean I just really believe that we are all that we carry our ancestors with us and they, they support us um, if we allow them to, if we try to erase them or ignore them, 
um, then I think that's when, you know, some of the negative ramifications can come about in terms of some of us, some of our ancestors did really horrible things, right? And Mm -hmm. if we're not confronting that and acknowledging that and talking about it and healing from it and processing it, then those patterns of behavior just repeat themselves. So I think for all Americans, we carry our history with us. It is our, our past is our present and our present is our past and our future. Mm-hmm. And I try to blur those lines to get rid of the linear thinking that we have that I think unfortunately separates us so much from our past mm-hmm. because I think that separation hurts us all. And so all of a lot of my plays deal with past and present and combining them. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait mm-hmm. to see to see where you're working on the Kennedy Center because obviously that's a little bit closer than Oregon. Yes. <laughs> but, but that's awesome. When you have that information, I would love to put it up in your show notes and, and get the word out to our listeners so they can check it out for themselves. Since obviously sovereignty is not here anymore. I know. Is, there, is it know. coming back? Is it going to Broadway? What's going on with it? <laughs> <laughs> I would love for it to go to Broadway. I'm waiting for it to get a call from a Broadway producer. Yes. Um, <laughs> so we'll see. I, I'm very hopeful that another theater will commit to producing it. That's awesome. So yeah. I, I asked this question of all my guests. Um, I haven't stopped yet and I'm not going to, but what would you say is your superpower? My superpower is that I haven't met another person that I can't relate to. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I can talk to anyone and I feel like even the people who, whose views are so opposed to mine, I can still find the humanity in them. And I think that's a superpower in the culture in the country that we live in today. It definitely is. If you can figure out how to reproduce that in pill form, I think you'd be a very rich woman. Right? <laughs> Where do you think that came from? I like to think it was my grandmother who who had to cross so many cultures. I mean, she, you know, is Cherokee, was Cherokee, will always be Cherokee. She married an Irish man whose family divorced, you know, didn't, like, just rejected her. And... um then she went on to teach at a predominantly white high school and she taught Latin and she taught German and she taught French and English and um, Italian some. She taught a lot of languages. And mm-hmm. I just think she was someone who could also get along with anyone and connect to anyone. And I think that's um, such an important human quality that I think we've lost for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, it's the the connection through empathy. Yeah, exactly. Um, on the flip side, what would you say is is your kryptonite? Um, I I'm very trusting, so I, you know, trust. I trust, 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 and so then I get betrayed, and so you know, it's hard. Um, it's hard to know when to not trust and when to trust, and. You know, maybe it's okay to be vulnerable and get hurt sometimes, but I tend to overly trust people. Mm. So it's it's almost like when your superpower is, is overused without kind of trusting that innate instinct. Of yeah. Like something's not right here. You're like, but I'm supposed to love everybody and see the good in them. Right. Right. Yeah. Did right. You, those people that have betrayed you, did you feel it before it happened? Like, did, was there something that peaked up in you? Um probably, but I think I've learned to turn that off too. So I have to because I think, you know, we have everything we need within us. We've just mm-hmm. been taught to turn certain ways of connecting to our higher self or whatever you want to call it or creator mm-hmm. God, you know, um, 
we've been taught to turn some of those connections off in this society. So it's learning to reconnect with what we already carry with us. Mm -hmm. So when we can put the phone down, when we can turn off the email and when we can trust our gut, then our communication within ourselves becomes a lot clearer. I think so. But we ignore our body. Like the mind body connection is huge. It is huge. It's, it's mega. It's very huge. Yeah. Yeah. But we, t- we turn it off because we're like, we, we need things to be easy. We don't want to create a stir. We don't have the evidence. But, exactly. But that internal like meter knows every time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's, it's, and you have to do it intentionally. It's not a, uh, it's not something you, you can't just turn on the TV and let it play in the background. You got to mm-hmm. set that intention and put your focus into it, you know? Yeah. And that's why I was, I was really happy that you, you talked about like your intention around success around writing. Like it wasn't necessarily a checklist, but it was like, my intention is to do this. This is how I define success. And it's not like I need other people to give me the feedback to tell me I'm good enough, but it's that I'm, I'm speaking from my authentic voice and yeah. to express the story in the way I know how to do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to do it without a fear of failure or fear of rejection, which is hard. It's very hard. Yeah. So how do, how do you deal with rejection? Um, um, (laughs) I just keep going and I, I just, I've had so much rejection in my life that, um, I've learned to just not worry so much about it, especially with playwriting, because, you know, when you're just starting out, you, the way you make it is you submit, submit, submit. And I I mean, I've had hundreds, if not over a thousand rejections as a playwright, you know, and you just keep going. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you kept going and you continue to go and I can't wait to see more of your stuff because you got, you got much, many more things, many more briefs, many more plays to write. Right. <laughs> I think you just need, you need to do the voice to text so you can save your hands. <laughs> uh, you know, I, but I hate those programs. I've tried to use them. They're, They're miserable. They're miserable. Yeah. So, so yeah. You need to improve that too. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I won't keep you from your busy schedule and all the writing you've got on Aww. on deck, but I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Spitfire podcast. We would love your review and your share. So if you can head on over to Apple podcasts and type in the Spitfire podcast, leave a review, five star it, share it. We love it. If you'd like to support the Spitfire podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash the Spitfire podcast, ranging from a dollar to $20 a month, whatever it is you want to support. We would absolutely love that. So head on over to patreon.com slash the Spitfire podcast and you keep being awesome.